Hello, everyone. I'm Rania Kalik, and this is Dispatches. James Baldwin once said that sooner or later, all the wretched of the earth will destroy the cobblestones on which London and Rome and Paris are built. France has been on fire after police were filmed shooting and killing unarmed 17-year-old Nahel Marzouk, a French citizen of Moroccan and Algerian descent, in the suburbs of Paris during a traffic stop. This shocking display of French state violence triggered large-scale protests, particularly among the country's Muslim, African, and Arab populations, long boiling over racist and classist structures staunchly rooted in French history and identity as displayed in its brutal colonial legacy. Protests and riots spread to cities and towns across the country, with demonstrators targeting state institutions like town halls and police stations. Macron, who rarely hesitates to cheer on protests and riots taking place in countries targeted by Western imperialism, has blamed social media and video games and threatened to punish parents of youths who participate in demonstrations. Over a million euros have been raised for the police officer who murdered the teen. And a conversation has been sparked about French colonial history and the neglect and injustice endured by a significant portion of its population. So what is the role of France's colonial hangover in all of this? Where do racism, secularism, and Islamophobia fit in? How about class? And what comes next? Here to discuss what's happening is Yasser Louati, a political analyst and head of the Committee for Justice and Liberties in France. But before we jump into it, this is just the first half of this episode. The second half is available for Breakthrough News members only. You can become a member at patreon.com slash breakthrough news. Yasser, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Well, it's so great to have you on. And it's such a timely interview, obviously, because of uh, everything taking place in France at the moment. So let's jump right into it. Can you start by giving our audience just a brief overview of what happened to Nahil uh, with this police shooting? And then we can go into detail from there. Well, as we saw uh, last week, we had a youngster of 17 years old who got uh, stopped by the police uh, from, I guess, a random control. But if you are black or Arab in France, it's not really random since you are 20 times more likely of being stopped by the police. So uh, it turned out the, the poor kid got shot point blank in the heart by the policeman. And as usual, the police version is always, I was in danger, I felt threatened, and I had to shoot. Uh, that was the initial version, and what kind of, you know, struck was that his version was very quickly spread throughout, you know, uh, the mainstream media and through the government. However, a couple of hours later, it turns out the policeman was in no, uh, was not in danger. He was away from the car, and he was already talking to uh, Nahel while pointing his gun at him. So, and then we see the car moving forward, and uh, that's when the, shoe, uh, the, uh, the bullet, you know, goes and, you know, hits uh, Nahel. Now, that was what we've seen. So this already contradicted the, the official version that the policeman was almost rammed by uh, Nahel, that he tried to run away, and then the policeman shot him. And just two days later, or three days later, the third passenger gave his testimony, and he said, no, before the video, Nahel had already been stopped, and he was beaten by the, the same policeman and his colleague, mm -hmm. and they were hitting him with a gun. So... When we see the video and the gun is being pointed at Nahel, Nahel was losing consciousness because he had been knocked out. And him driving an automatic car, 
as he lost consciousness, he released the brakes and he was not in parking mode, so the car just moved forward. And then the police, uh, the, the policeman shot him. So to put things into perspective, this is not the first time it happened for the past um, uh, two years. Over 20 people got killed in France. And in the US, statistics are different. It's in France, that's a catastrophe. We don't have a mass circulation of guns in France. We don't. We are not supposed to have, you know, day-to-day -day killings of people by the police. So when this happens, it's a major event. Now, in the case of uh, Nahel, the article of law that was used to justify this and justify the previous killings that also uh, took place, especially in Paris, you know, people refusing to stop at a traffic stop and, uh, you know, the police shoots them. It's based, I'm going to be slightly technical, Article 435-1. This piece of legislation from the Homeland Security Code has broadened the definition of police legitimate self-defense to include people refusing to stop when the police summons them. However, in that same piece of legislation, the wording is quite uh, precise. It says, if there is an immediate danger for the life or the physical integrity of the policeman and woman, and if, if it is in the case of absolute necessity. But what happened is that the police has adopted a very loose interpretation to basically shoot anyone who refuses to stop. And that's why, just I'm going to stop on this, that's why police killings are much higher mm -hmm. than those of the military police, the gendarmerie. Wow. Because the gendarmerie has adopted a more conservative application of the legislation in order to avoid these killings. And hence, of course, the outrage was ignited with the video and here we are today almost a week later with you know you know red glowing cities and black smoke yeah, and of course, I want to discuss with you some of the underlying, you know, root causes of all of this, including the racism, the sort of colonial hangover uh, in France that has a lot to do with this, um, as well as some of the class issues that go into this. But first, I just want to note, I mean, obviously, like, most of our audience at Breakthrough is American. They're very familiar with police violence in the U.S., which, like you noted, doesn't necessarily take the same uh in the same structure as it does in France. However, I did find there was one um, article that noted that in 2022 alone, there were 138 documented incidences of French police firing shots at moving cars, while 13 people died in shootings that took place during exactly. traffic stops. Exactly. Traffic exactly. stops specifically. And I also saw you say this in another interview that French police are actually the most violent police forces in continental Europe. Can you talk a bit, can you elaborate a bit more about police violence in France? Like why are police in France more violent than police in other European countries? As you said, it's, you know, there is a deep-rooted culture of uh, um, the police defining itself as a force to uh, scare people and to punish and disciple uh, and, and, and discipline. Now, I was in a, in a debate yesterday and I had an argument because I brought back the history of the modern day police and especially for white people, they hate when you bring to them the genesis of, of, of institutions whose, you know, uh, how can I say, practices are still felt to this day. People tend to think that, you know, the police has been defined to protect and serve. It was not. The modern day police that we know it in France, the police nationale, was born under or was founded under the Vichy regime in 1941. So the Vichy regime is the puppet regime that, you know, worked with the Nazis 
that deported the Jews and collaborated actively with, you know, Adolf Hitler. And, and the infamous picture of uh, Philippe Pétain, the, the French head of uh, Vichy, and Hitler. Now, when Pétain signed a decree in, on the 23rd of April 1941, he centralizes the national police and makes it a single entity. Before that, it was more of a regional force. And, you know, different regions would have their own, like you would have, like, you know, state police in the U.S. This time, you know, of course, after... Um, it, we are still a monarchy somehow in France. We lack things to be heavily centralized. Now, a year later, the first accomplishments of the police was not to defend, you know, French civilians and to fight the Nazis or, you know, get involved in subversive activities to free the country. It was the rounding up of Jews. So you have the genesis being, you know, a, a, a fascist fighting the police. A year later, they deport the Jews by collaborating with Carl uh, Aubert, the head of the SS in France. And who was coordinating that? A man called René Bousquet. Who mm. lived, uh, he, he, was, he was killed in 1993. So he lived for a very long time. The other person, Maurice Papon, of, of, among others, Maurice Papon was part of the uh, local uh, prefecture, which is like, you know, like, like a county with executive uh, powers. Maurice Papon coordinated the deportation of Jews in southwest France. And why I keep bringing this historical fact, Rania, is mm -hmm. because the police was never purged of the, 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 the liberation. There was never a purge of all the bad elements and the cadres who collaborated. They remained in place, which means the ideology in the, at the genesis was pretty much you know, left in place. Maurice Papon, after deporting Jews, in the early 1940s, remained within the uh, state apparatus, especially in the in the police, in the national police, and found himself head of the national police in 1961. What happened in 1961? 17th of October 1961, we have Algerians demonstrating against the war in Algeria and for the independence of Algeria. Maurice Papon who was working with Vichy, orders the police to kill as many Algerians as possible. Hence, the 17th of October, 1961, massacre. Around 300 Algerians were killed, so much so their bodies were being dumped in the Seine River. And the youngest victim was Fatima Bedar. She was 15 years old. Wow. And nobody was ever held accountable. How do you want an institution with such a bloody history reform itself without outside intervention to kind of review the ideology, its processes, and make sure that the people at, you know, in power um, do not follow the footsteps of their predecessors. One last name to remember, especially for an American audience that has followed the Yellow Vest movement. People mm -hmm. in the U.S., and of course, I, mean, I read the U.S. press every day, have been, of course, you know, you know, intrigued by the Yellow Vest movement and how it was brutally crushed. The man who orchestrated the crushing of the Yellow Vest movement, of course, was Emmanuel Macron, mm -hmm. through his Minister of Interior, Christophe Castaner, but the man at the head of the police was a man called Didier Lallemand. Didier Lallemand is so notorious for his far-right views that even the former Prime Minister of France, Alain Juppé, called him a Nazi. Wow. Wow. We're talking about 20, you know, 18, 2019 France, not 1942. Mm. So how do you want Rania to have a police force that sends its troops 
to make people feel safe and avoid shooting them when they do not stop at traffic stops. I mean, that's a lot of... uh that's a lot of interesting history that I'm, you know, I'm curious if is being discussed at all in France. Um, I know in the U.S. people are certain, a lot of people are very ignorant about the history of the roots of the U.S. police, for example, uh, which also have really terrible roots as well. But I want to, I want to ask you about the role. And I do, I do want to go back into the colonial side of this and talk a bit about Algeria. But first I want to ask you a bit about the role of racism and Islamophobia in this killing and the anger that we see in the streets right now. Um, and you've been covering the issue of Islamophobia in France for quite some time. I mean, a lot of the work you do is based around civil liberties uh, in France. Uh, and obviously there's certain people in France who are targeted disproportionately uh, by the by state violence. So, so can you talk about a, a bit about the racism and Islamophobia at play here? Well, you have to keep in mind, as, you know, I like, like the, uh, the term you used, uh, colonial hangover, because France never solved its colonial legacy. It is pretty much uh, the elites are upset it ended. They're not upset it happened, they're upset it ended. And there is a bitter and profound bitterness and grudge towards Algeria. Basically, Algeria was a crown jewel of the French uh, colonial empire. You know, it was the biggest country. It was, you know, uh, a settler colonial, uh, colonial uh, enterprise. Unlike Tunisia or Morocco, it was more like a protectorate. So you, you had very few uh, white settlers, you know, being involved. In the case of France, of course, when, you know, the, the, the colonial era starts and these countries start getting their independence, we just moved on to a, to a different thing. There was no assessment, okay, what went right. Okay, if anything, but what went wrong? What are the consequences of this decolonial uh, phase of French uh, history? And how can we move away from that? So that's why you don't hear Emmanuel Macron apologizing for what happened, de despite the documented massacres in Algeria. I mean, even famous intellectuals in France, um, like Tocqueville, for example, who wrote uh, on, on, on democracy in America and Cornel West quite famously uh, quotes him from time to time. Uh, Tocqueville legitimized the mass killings of Algerians and he said we have to burn down crops. We have uh, to put these indigenous people in caves um, and set them on fire because that's the way we have to deal with these savages. We have to keep in mind, again, when I mentioned these events, we never had, let's say, a commission that says, all right, this is what's wrong, we have to move forward. Okay, let's, you know, make, make up for it. No. When it comes to this generation, second, third, and fourth generation of French citizens of North and Sub-Saharan African descent, the colonial history is not over. Maybe what people moved on and they saw, you know, how can I say, uh, impatient with, you know, these people. They say, no, you know, that was there, this is now. No, because the benefits you reaped during the colonial era are still here today. So, for example, at the political level in France, uh, again, in the U.S., people don't tend to know that, but what we call the republic in France is not really a republic. A republic, of course, is the sovereignty of the people. No, not in France. In France, you have a compromise between a monarchy on the one hand and a republic. So the 
writers of the constitution that was adopted in 1958, which means the, late, the fifth constitution since the uh, revolution in 1789, they came up with this compromise. All right, we are going to have voting, but the president will remain above the law. He's going to be head of the, um, the military. He's going to be, he will be able to dissolve the National Assembly if he doesn't like uh, the majority in place. He nominates the uh, prime minister. And he's, of course, uh, in charge of foreign affairs, etc., etc. And on top of that, there are many tools to allow the president to bypass parliament. So try to imagine in the U.S., you have Biden or before that, uh, Trump, maybe they did. Uh, they, for example, try to pass a piece of legislation and they keep Congress out of the loop. In France, we can do that. We have Article 49-3. And the president could say, all right, and that's exactly what he did with the pension reform. Now, we have a highly authoritarian republic. How do you think it will act with the communities still perceived as second-class second citizens? Well, the results are quite striking. In the banlieue, especially when you are a holder of a graduate degree and you went to, you know, through higher education to get out of the hood, Unemployment is twice as high, uh, uh, is double of the national average. If you are a Muslim person in France and you're looking for a job, you apply for it, you have to, t to send five times more resumes than a white person. Mm. If you are black or Arab in, in the streets of Paris, especially if you are young, you are 20 times more likely of being stopped by the police. When you apply for public housing, and public housing in France is not like the project buildings. We have decent public housing in France. This is not like, you know, uh, Queensbridge or, you know, Compton. It's really sometimes decently, you know, housing, but cheaper for the average person. You wait twice as long than any other, you know, category in France. And you add to it, and this is something you probably have seen for the past, because I've seen your work and I salute it, uh, over what's happening abroad. When you see the constant usage of racist rhetoric and the constant um, framing that France has a domestic enemy, and that domestic enemy is not the far right, it is not descendants of the fascists who sold out France, it is these blacks and Arabs. And this uh, becomes a, how can I say, an état de fait. The Republic does not know how to behave with blacks and Arabs if it's not through disciplining, punishing, jailing, and of course, uh, demonizing. And that is why uh, it, the uh, uprisings were quick to catch fire, and more, even worse than in, back in 2005, they were quick to spread from one city to the whole territory. So we have to keep in mind that though the Republic in France says that we are colorblind, and they call this uh, universalism, you know, everything is universal, etc. It's a white-centered universalism. The norm is white. But when they deal with people, they deal with them based on their ethnic origin. Otherwise, people wouldn't feel so discriminated because their first or last name sounds a bit too Arabic or too Muslim or too black. Right. So that's it. Yeah. Well, you know, and I, I want to, you know, reiterate, of course, like the fact that I'm, I'm speaking to you from Lebanon, which is, of course, you know, not to the same extent as Algeria. It wasn't settler colonialism. But at one point, France was like the colonial master of Lebanon. And I know, unfortunately, I'm probably going to get in trouble for saying this from some of my Lebanese friends or maybe not. But uh, I know there is 
certainly a Lebanese superiority complex when it comes to those who are in France uh, and the way they talk about these protests because they seem to think that they're white or something, um, which is unfortunate because Lebanon and to the French, you know, to the French officials is viewed in exactly the same way as a lot of these other Arab and African countries are. So that colonial legacy is, of course, so, so important. I even I want to ask you to also elaborate on that. But before we go there, because I because, you know, I, I just our American audience, I don't think is as familiar with Algeria, like a lot of uh, a lot of leftists in America are familiar with perhaps France and Haiti, for example, and that there was like an uprising and, you know, slaves literally kicked out their plantation owners and, of course, were forced to pay reparations to France, I think, until like 2009, which is insane. Uh, but we're not as we don't really learn so much about Algeria. But before you elaborate on Algeria, I just want to ask if there's a class element to this as well. I mean, you kind of alluded to that. Um, but where does class fit into this? A lot of these protests are taking place in areas where there is economic neglect and are also, of course, areas that are populated mostly by, you know, Arab and African minorities. The, uh, the race, the, the class dimension, of course, only exacerbates this uh, colonial legacy. We have to remember that the Africans who, are, who came to France initially, of course, they first, you know, came to work. That's notorious because the uh, the capital class in France did not want to invest in heavy machinery because they were transitioning. So they had to. So they brought in, you know, labor from Morocco, Algeria, Tunisia, uh, Senegal, Mali, uh, Mauritania, to name a few. However, we, something that also that tends to be forgotten is. This is, this is what, what I tell white people that tell us, so, yeah, why are you so critical of France? You're giving us a bad name in, in the, you know, uh, abroad. Well, I don't have a guilt complex when it comes to France. People like, you know, white people betrayed France by selling out to the Nazis. Blacks and Arabs were brought to free France. So there is already a debt when it comes to the freedom enjoyed by the majority of white people. Then after you know, France was uh, burned down by the Nazis. These blacks and Arabs being demonized today are the ones who rebuilt this country. So there is a debt when it comes to the freedom of the majority of the population and a debt for the economic prosperity they have been enjoying since the end of World War II. And this is why to try to, to frame this as a new problem is missing the point. Blacks, Arabs, Muslims have been an integral part of France ever since France decided to colonize these, their countries. So, like a famous rapper, you know, someone from my hood called uh, Kerry James said, every, uh, every arrival has a start. And that start was you coming to us, not us coming to you. So, now, these, you know, just, you know, let's speak, talk now about, you know, the economic relations. So these blacks and Arabs were basically invisible workers. They, they were away from the city and mainstream society. And pretty much the idea was they're going to work and leave. But what happened is they had to stay because, you know, they were not no longer here for five years, but for more, like any person who comes to a country, you know, at a certain age, you make your own family. So what has what the unforgivable sin that you know French elites blame you know these minorities for is that 
when they when they started having kids, but also housing, schooling, transportation, and and again, even back then, an end to police brutality. Because we have to remember, the colonial hangover is still there. The police, when it hired people in the 1970s and 60s, it hired from the former colonial troops who, who were holding grudges against Algerians. But now they took the war and continued it on French soil, killing especially young uh, Arabs by the dozens without anyone being prosecuted. After these demonstrations are organized in 1983 to put an end to racism and to have, you know, uh, um, it was actually against racism and for equality. And these marches were sparked by the killing of Arabs by, unsurprisingly, the police, but also mm -hmm. far-right activists, right? So people organized and marched and they walked from uh, down south uh, from Lyon, actually in the center of France, all the way to Paris, and they walked for like days in a row. And that march was the signal that these guys are serious. They truly think they are like us. They are demanding mm -hmm. equality, etc. So 1987, four years later, the government in place sets up a commission to change the rule of citizenship. You're no longer French because you are born on French soil. You become French if your parents are French. The last time France did that was under Vichy to strip Jews of their French citizenship. So you see how this is a virus that keeps going dormant and wakes up every single time there is an economic crisis. Remember, sorry, remember, I mean, in the 1980s, unsurprisingly, is a, it's a, is a period of uh, deep crisis. After 1945, France you know, puts in place uh, through the National Council of the, of the Resistance the, the modern-day welfare state, which is supposed to provide a safety net to everyone and put uh, and give equal opportunity to all French people. Mm -hmm. When François Mitterrand, this is why, you know, electoral politics, maybe we can, you know, I'm watching what's happening with the Democrats in the U.S., and to say the least, I'm not very impressed. But <laughs> uh, in France, we have the same problem. So we have the Socialist Party, or the so-called Socialist Party, gets elected in 1981, and uh, goes from a full-blown left-wing uh, agenda to the uh, neoliberal parenthesis, putting an end to structural reforms in order to have a strong welfare state and that taxation benefits everyone, not only the stock market. So as the government is moving away, steering away from its initial plans of applying you know, a more uh, socialist uh, agenda, well, who's going to take the, you know, bear the brunt? The working class, of course. Right. And the working class was told, your problem is not the government betraying its promises and working for the minority that's holding access to, uh, to, to, to big money. Your problem is your black and Arab co-worker. Mm -hmm. Right? Sounds and very familiar. <laughs> so, exactly. Sounds very familiar. So the working class instead of banding against you know, the capitalist elite, was split. And we have seen, especially, I'm actually um, part of a, um, a documentary film called The Flag, and we document that. You see that the Arab workers are literally being stoned by their white co-workers because they went on strike for better pay. So 
We move forward now through the 80s, and every couple of years, we see an attempt to change the rules of the game to mm-hmm. keep this, the losers in the losing position so, that, so, so they never move up the ladder. Attempt to change the citizenship code in 1987. 1989, we have the first national hysteria around the Muslim headscarf. Two young girls wearing a headscarf were kicked out from school for wearing it, even though, and this is where it was, it was still good, but it was still okay back then. The head of the school, the, the school principal was a right-wing, you know, wannabe, you know, uh, career politician. So he mm. used these two girls as a stepping stone to get his name out there. However, back then, institutions held their grounds. The um, Council of the State, which is our highest administrative court, said the Republic cannot discriminate between uh, children based on their religious affiliation. As long as these children do not uh, not proselytize um, in the school, uh, 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 building, as long as they go, come to war, to, to school, like any other student, they are welcome. But five, uh, excuse me, 15 years later, in 2004, we had the passing of the banning of the headscarf in public schools, which opened the Pandora box, because after that, we have seen the multiplication of anti-Muslim specific legislation to keep them away from mainstream society, away from mainstream politics. The latest accomplishment of, of that, or the latest iteration of structural state Islamophobia in France, you heard of it, I know. Two years ago, the government passed the anti-separatism law. Mm-hmm. And this law should have, honestly, it should have sparked a revolution in France because the government attacked freedom of speech freedom of assembly, freedom of dissent, and it also violated something you are very familiar with, laïcité. Mm. Because laïcité is about separation of church and state. The government cannot intervene in religious affairs. It's a no-no, it's a, it's, a, it's a red line. With this law, when it comes to Muslims, the government can get involved in nominating who can speak and represent Muslims, what kind of imam is uh, uh, legal to be uh, to exercise in a mosque and to shut down any organization without having to go before the court of law? Mm. Which means tomorrow you can set up an organization, the government says, you are a bunch of Islamists, even if there are no proofs, it gets shut down. Jesus. And of course, this brings us to something I want to ask you about, which is the president of France, Macron, uh, who has been overseeing all of this, even though he's considered uh, by most people in the global north internationally as being like a liberal. However, (laughs) after this um, after this police killing, you know, he did call the killing inexcusable. Uh, However, he also blamed the protests and riots on music and video games, and he's threatened to punish the parents of youths who are participating in protests. He's also been quite anti-Muslim, and he's been a figure who's really invoked the idea of laicite or secularism to try to really push what sounds like Christian supremacy under the guise of secularism. But anyways, on that note, could you tell me about uh, you know, Macron's response, how it is, it, is it affecting his popularity? And what is his popularity at this point? 
or he's very unpopular. And again, mm. it, it, you know, Macron could be compared to the Obama effect back in 2008. Mm. He's going to change, uh, you know, politics. No, it's just a new face to an ugly old system. That was it was about rebranding, you know, neoliberalism, but rebranding white supremacy, rebranding, you know, uh, state authoritarianism. It was never about, you know, deep reforms that would benefit the majority. Macron, of course, ran on a, a liberal platform. I'm going to be the anti-Le Pen. Yet he's been in power now uh, five years and he, uh, six years, and he applied most of Marine Le Pen's program. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear the rest. You can access it by becoming a Breakthrough News member at patreon.com slash breakthrough news.